Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute. Have I got a follicular lymphoma trial for you. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. In this podcast series, our faculty have discussed follicular lymphoma, its management, first, second, and third line treatments, including some of the newer therapies. For example, the PI3 kinase inhibitors, copanlicib and duvelisib, and CAR T-cell inhibitors, including Axacel, Lisacel, and Tisacel, as well as bispecific antibodies, for example, Mosentuzumab. In this final episode of our series, Dr. Christopher Flowers and Dr. Loretta Nastapil discuss clinical trials that are in progress, the importance of the clinical trial process, and how they benefit both patients and help move the needle on new and promising treatments. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL6. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Flowers is a professor and ad interim division head in the Division of Cancer Medicine in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Dr. Nastapil is an associate professor also in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, Houston. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Flowers will begin our discussion. Thanks, uh, Dr. Nastapil, for joining me again today to talk about uh, follicular lymphoma. This is the last of our six morning commute podcasts. Uh, and talking about a, a topic that I know has been important to you, and that's on clinical trials for follicular lymphoma. Tell me a little bit about how you approach patients with follicular lymphoma in talking about clinical trials uh, when patients are newly diagnosed with follicular lymphoma. Yeah, I think one of the maybe misconceptions about clinical trials is that they're generally reserved for patients who have failed all standard options and are either considering participating on a clinical trial or pursuing something like palliative care. And that's really something that I think we need to dispel. Clinical trials, there are various stages, but when we're using them in earlier lines of treatment, uh, generally there's a pretty high bar that's established that they need to have some sort of rationale that they're going to be better than our current options. And so we're conducting those trials to potentially move the field forward. So it's super important to walk patients through the consent form in terms of what the potential risks might be, what the research question is, um, and how their participation may address that. So for a disease like follicular lymphoma, where right now we anticipate high response rates to therapy, but also high chance that they're going to relapse, my interpretation of that is there's still room to improve upon that. And one way to do that is to conduct really smart, novel clinical trials that potentially may one day lead to a cure or at least to fewer uh, relapses. When we get into the relapse refractory setting, that's generally where the really novel uh, therapies that are sort of bench to bedside, meaning they're taking concepts that were discovered in the lab in terms of how does follicular lymphoma occur, what's driving the disease, 
can we target that therapeutically? And then we have this either new therapy or new combinations of drugs uh, that we're going to test it in someone uh, who now their disease has established that it's not responding to standard treatments. So it depends on where the patient is in their treatment journey, um, how aggressive their disease is behaving, and how interested I am in something that's completely novel or different from our standard approach. I completely agree with you on all those points. I, I think a big part of discussion around clinical trials, particularly for patients with follicular lymphoma, is breaking down those initial misconceptions about wh where a clinical trial fits in uh, and how we approach clinical trials in this disease. And sometimes I even give historical examples uh, like uh, clinical trials where we compared watching and waiting uh, to uh, simple interventions uh, like uh, single-agent rituximab. Uh, to give uh, patients just that general context uh, for what we're talking about when we're talking about a clinical trial, particularly in the frontline setting. And, and many of those can be interventions uh, in some cases that are less intensive than what our uh, previous standards of care uh, have been to try to define uh, where those might uh, play a role. Well, you, you moved on to the discussion about uh, the relapse setting uh, for follicular lymphoma. And as we think about patients with relapse follicular lymphoma, some of the things that we uh, see uh, as uh, challenges are, are just the number of options that we have for patients with uh, clinical trials. Uh, and in the relapse setting, you know, uh, there are a number of new agents that we uh, think about uh, both uh, as available with standard of care, uh, but moving up uh, beyond those standard of care agents to clinical trials. So what sorts of things excite you in the relapse setting right now about uh, what options are available for patients on trial? What we're most excited about in terms of targeting follicular lymphoma is maybe focusing more on the microenvironment. So the immune cells that either support the disease or are failing to penetrate into that that lymph node or that uh, mass where the lymphoma cells are thriving. And so a lot of our therapies are aimed at either T-cell engagers, where we can either uh, engage the patient's own T-cells that haven't been modified in any way through the form of bispecific antibodies, which uh, based off of its terminology, you have one head that engages the tumor antigen and in the other head it engages the patient's own circulating T cells. And that may, may be one way to drive those important immune cells that could eradicate the disease into the tumor microenvironment and help it really target in on that tumor itself. There are other aspects of that where we're using uh, novel patient donor T cells in the form of CAR T cell therapy, where patients' own T-cells may not be optimal candidates because they've seen several lines of prior therapies or just are exhausted. And so using allo-healthy donor T-cells is another uh, way that we might utilize the immune system to eradicate lymphoma cells. And then are there combination strategies where we may take uh, targeted agents uh, such as B-cell receptor targeting therapies and partner them with antibodies that help the immune system come into the tumor microenvironment. So these are all strategies to either use healthy T-cells or immune cells to get into that tumor microenvironment or manipulate the patient's own immune system to do it, but help it guide those immune cells into that tumor and help it see uh, those antigens on the surface. I think there are other promising aspects like using NK cells, um, again, just a different type of immune cell that may help us eradicate tumor cells. What are your thoughts about some of these immune therapies in, in follicular lymphoma? 
I think there's really a multitude of options now for patients uh, on clinical trials. And some of that is really navigating among all those options and identifying the ones that may be the best option for a particular patient. But as you mentioned, uh, these immune uh, directed therapies come in a, a number of varieties, all of which are exciting. Some of them are drugs that help to bring uh, the uh, host's immune uh, system or the patient's immune system and to help to kill the tumor. Some of them are specific cellular therapies, like you mentioned, uh, like T cells, uh, and the, probably the, the most well-known of those are uh, chimeric antigen receptor T cells or CAR T cells, uh, but other ones are uh, cell therapies that you mentioned, like NK cells, uh, where those have been directed to kill uh, follicular lymphoma cells. And so I think across that host of therapies, there really are, are a broad variety that uh, look to be uh, very meaningful options. I think the key challenge that uh, many of us will have as investigators is trying to identify the, the particular types of therapy that are best for particular types of patients, and then to try and uh, individualize those therapies and target them for the patients where they're most likely to provide benefit. What are some of the things that you see as challenges moving forward uh, in recruiting patients uh, and enrolling patients on clinical trials for follicular lymphoma? The first thing is flick lymphoma is a rare tumor type. And so uh, I always have to acknowledge that they do well with a lot of our therapies. So actually having a patient with flick lymphoma in need of a next line of treatment is not a common occurrence. So I think we need to do a better job as a community getting trials out to patients where they are being treated or close to their home. So engaging community oncologists, because many of these studies can be done uh, outside of large academic centers, but making sure they have the infrastructure and the support they need to conduct clinical research is one way we can do it. That may also help broaden uh, some of these novel therapies out to underrepresented populations. So those of lower socioeconomic status, those in rural um, locations, or even those um, that are uh, female or older minority patients. And so I think broadening our trial networks is one way to improve access to novel therapies. I think education is a key area, though we often will uh, encourage patients and providers that the majority are going to do well, um, meaning the at least 80% should anticipate having a normal life expectancy despite having follicular lymphoma. But for those 20% of patients that we talked about earlier in this series that progress early, their outcomes can be quite poor. And I think even more disappointing, in my opinion, given that we know the majority should anticipate a normal life expectancy. So we need to do a better job of trying to identify uh, strategies and trials aimed at that unmet need. We also know that many of these patients are going to face multiple recurrences. And so being mindful of the toxicity with these therapies and developing trials or uh, posing questions in terms of what is the optimal treatment duration, because some of these therapies as we get into later lines of treatment may be ongoing until progression or intolerance. Uh, so we may need better strategies in terms of understanding could we actually have a treatment holiday? Does it depend on the mechanism of action or the treatment schedule? Um, those are the types of questions that I think we still could answer despite this being a rare disease and despite patients facing uh, generally good outcomes from the onset. 
The other area that I worry about is transformation and that, that starts to become more like the aggressive lymphomas and in terms of how we approach it. And so we don't oftentimes talk about it when we're focused solely on phallic lymphoma, uh, but that is a situation that also is an unmet need, though fortunately CAR T-cell therapy has made a significant impact there as well. Um, how we identify patients who are likely to transform, how we approach them if they've already had uh, prior exposure to anthracycline, these are questions that I think we still uh, need answered. So I think there's a lot of research questions. It's a small population of patients, so we need um, better access in a lot of ways to accomplish or answer some of these questions. You've been very active in trying to expand out clinical trial networks. What ideas do you have in terms of trying to broaden our reach? Well, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head in terms of some of the issues that we face with getting patients on uh, clinical trials or getting them enrolled uh, in clinical trials. And that's that most of uh, patients with follicular lymphoma are treated out in community practices, not in uh, some of the academic practices or larger practices where uh, there are uh, clinical trials as a prominent uh, component. And I think bringing clinical trials out uh, to those patients in the community is going to be a, a key step forward uh, in uh, helping uh, get clinical trials to patients. And also thinking about uh, the kinds of needs for patients in the community and designing trials specifically for those patient populations rather than the reverse, designing a trial and then hoping that the patients will come from the community uh, to that clinical trial uh, when it hasn't been designed uh, specifically towards their needs. There also has been uh, a rise in the number of clinical trial networks that are uh, reaching out into the communities. And I think it's been nice to see that there are a number of societies and other groups that are expanding that. There's been the National Clinical Trial uh, Network or, or NCORP uh, that reaches out into the communities broadly. I think our, our groups in lymphoma have not used those quite as broadly as some of the other tumor types uh, have, uh, but there really are options there in terms of growth and development in terms of clinical trials uh, in the community. You know, one question that uh, always comes up is about uh, giving patients advice about uh, the role of a clinical trial. You know, if you have a community physician uh, who's interested or has a patient who's interested in a clinical trial, uh, how do you counsel them about talking to the patients about uh, clinical trials that might be options? I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is sort of our unconscious bias and what the patient's perceptions might be about trial. Because I, I generally do frequently hear that patients don't want to be our guinea pigs. I mean, it's, it's language that's regularly used. I think that's a perception that they commonly have. And so making sure that we take the time to acknowledge what, what are their fears about participating on a clinical trial, because there is a research question that's being asked and we don't know what the answer will be at the onset. And so I, my general approach is really to first identify what is the question that we're trying to ask? Is it a good question? Are we, is the approach gonna result in an answer that's gonna be meaningful? And so I think as long as we still approach each trial with that in mind, because we don't wanna be exposing patients to trials that there's really little benefit. So we need to make sure that one, the trial is worthwhile. And I think generally speaking, if we can then communicate that to patients and to other providers, why we think this study is important. What do we hope to be gained from their participation? What is the risk involved? Because I think that's the most important thing patients want to understand. 
what is our perceived benefit? Um, so it's that old adage, what risk benefit ratio, how is it skewed? But I also think there is a role for patients to contribute to the greater good. And I think that's the other thing that as long as patients understand what their contribution will result, uh, not only to them, but to the next group of lymphoma patients that come along, I think sometimes we don't do a good enough job walking them through how critically important one person's participation in a trial could be and how it may shape the field. And so the one thing I try really hard to do is not only walking them through why we think it's important or why we think they might potentially benefit, what the risks are and what the potential gain for the society at large is, but then follow up with that once they've participated in a trial. I like giving patients updates along the way oh, by the way, we're, we're reporting these findings on this trial you participated in at a large national or international meeting, and this was the response from the crowd. What is your impression of this? How do you think this might help you and other patients like you? And then particularly when they participate on a study that leads to FDA approval of a new therapy, I really enjoy sharing that news with patients because they have ownership of that. They know that they then left a mark on the field that then will be reciprocated for years to come. I think that's the part where we should do more of that um, so that then people understand why we think this is so important and how they may be contributing far beyond just their own personal experience. Yeah, I completely agree with you on those points. And it's uh, really important and critical to engage our patients uh, in the process of developing clinical trials and uh, giving them feedback about uh, clinical trials. I think one of our investigators has now been involved in trying to understand what are the factors that influence patient participation in clinical trials in lymphoma broadly. And uh, getting that patient perspective is really critical to the ways that we design trials moving forward. So you touched on some of these points in the answer to your last question, uh, but you've been a national leader in the design of clinical trials for follicular lymphoma. What are the kinds of things that you think about when you're developing a new clinical trial for patients with follicular lymphoma? Actually, one of the first things I think about is what's gonna be the burden on the patient? Because I think sometimes we have really uh, grand goals, which are important, and we have lots of opportunity to ask and answer many questions, even with, within one trial. But we have to be mindful of the burden we put on patients in terms of how many visits, how many lab draws, how many imaging studies, how many procedures are going to be done. And actually, I learned a valuable lesson participating in a study uh, that was led by Jonathan Friedberg. It was the most beautiful, simplistic study, but it is going to answer an important question. And it was was one of the easiest studies to conduct. So I think that's the first thing that I consider whenever I'm helping either write the study or advise um, uh, companies that are writing it. Think about every single time you ask for a lab draw, is that necessary? What are we going to gain from this? Does this help the patients in terms of safety? And are we answering questions? Think about every single visit where we're asking uh, patients to come in, um, what, what is to be gained by that? And so being mindful that we could reduce the burden, both from a time standpoint, but from a resource utilization standpoint, that should be done while making sure that we're ensuring their safety. I think the other thing uh, that I consider is the duration of treatment. Um, I think generally in those relapsed refractory settings, the sort of impression is that these patients are going to need this therapy and they may not be on it for very long. And so sometimes we're constantly uh, lobbying to companies to shorten the duration of treatment, particularly once we've had patients that have been in remission for periods and um, 
continuing therapy until progression or intolerance is something that becomes less attractive, particularly as the therapy is more effective. So just being mindful of, again, the burden in terms of, well, if this works, what does that mean? Do they have to return to Houston every four weeks for the rest of their lives? Um, and then the other thing that I think is critical is really understanding what is the signal we're seeing. It's fun to do trials in lymphoma patients because generally patients respond and it's really encouraging to see a new drug you don't know a lot about result in a response or a remission in a patient who's failed their last treatment. But I think sometimes we fall short in understanding why did it work? What was unique about that patient or this drug? How did it work? So then we can design our next study. So I think we have a lot of positive early phase studies. We tend to see some negative phase three studies, maybe because we don't do as good a job understanding, is there really synergy if it's more than one drug being combined? What is actually the mechanism of action? What was the patient population we studied it in so that we really are informed when we design that next study? So I try really hard to build in without adding to the burden on the patients any chance to either do correlative science where we're really trying to get at that question, what was the mechanism or the driver behind the responses we're seeing or lack thereof, so that that then informs the next study that we do. Because trial participation is so um, infrequent and each patient is such an important um, each trial participant is so critically important that we need to make sure that um, the next study we do is, is, is worthwhile and it's gonna be a positive trial. And so that's the other thing that I, I try really hard to incorporate. Can we learn as much as possible, um, efficiently as possible? So we've talked a lot about a number of therapies that are out there for follicular lymphoma and clinical trials. What's on the horizon for uh, clinical trials next in follicular lymphoma? So in terms of therapies that are on the horizon that we're most excited about, mosentuzumab is likely going to be FDA approved soon. It's a CD20, CD3 bispecific that looks quite promising in phase one, two studies. Epcritimab is a subcutaneous uh, injection of a CD20, CD3 bispecific. It also is likely to be FDA approved this spring, maybe first in large cell, but it's being studied in follicular. Both are entering into phase three studies in combination with lenalidomide, an oral immune modulator. So that appears to be a rational and intriguing combination to further enhance the patient's own immune system to eradicate lymphoma cells. We already have FDA approval of AxiCell and TisaCell, but both are moving into randomized studies uh, where they will be compared head-to-head -head with other options currently available to patients, such as chemoimmunotherapy and lenalidomide and rituximab that will ultimately address the question, is CAR-T really better than the other options we have and at what cost from a toxicity and um, resource utilization standpoint? We have other targeted agents to target the B-cell receptor signaling pathway. So though ibrutinib will likely not be approved for follicular lymphoma, xanabrutinib, which is a more uh, selective and specific BTK inhibitor in combination with obinutuzumab looked quite promising in the Rosewood study. And so again, a confirmatory randomized phase three is launching. It will likely be compared to lenalidomide rituximab um, and uh, chemoimmunotherapy. And then though the PI3 kinase inhibitors have been mostly uh, either removed from the market or their phase three confirmatory studies halted, uh, we still do have uh, more potent PI3 kinase inhibitors uh, that are still under development. Um, and really moving forward, they'll be looking at the dose schedule where there will be intermittent dosing to try and mitigate some of the toxicities uh, that 
potentially uh, slowed or halted the development of things like idelalisib, um, duvalisib, umbralisib. Well, this has been uh, an outstanding uh, conversation today, as uh, usual, talking about a topic that is important to, to both of us, and that's follicular lymphoma. I learned a lot uh, from this conversation, and hopefully all of you listening have uh, learned a lot as well, and have really enjoyed this podcast uh, series. So thank you so much, Dr. Nastapol, for uh, joining us and uh, being involved in the podcast series. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL6. Look for all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today. Today.